Um, hey, look, uh, I'm sharing uh, again tonight. Um, it, it is a bit of the Daniel show for the last few weeks, and I hope it's not going to be that. So if, you know, if anyone here wants to share um, and wants to learn how to share, uh, you guys are very, very welcome to come up to me and chat. Um, I, I'm always, I'm really, really, like I'm a person who really, really enjoys teaching people how to do this stuff, because really, I'm really passionate about teaching and really passionate about speaking. And so if you're someone who's like, maybe this is something I could do, come chat to me. Uh, cool. Um, tonight, I'm going to be sharing from the parables, uh, the parables of Jesus. Not all of them, because there are quite a few. Um, but what, what I want to do is explore um, three parables, um, a bit of the greatest hits tour of my favorite parables, and what they tell us about Jesus' way of seeing the world. And particularly, I want to look at what it means, what these parables tell us of justice and fairness within the kingdom of God. And so we're going to kind of look through each different parable, and it's kind of a bit of exposition for each of them, and then I guess trying to tie that together to what I see these things teach us about justice and fairness and what the kingdom of God looks like. And so, yeah, today we're going to be exploring what it means when we say together on the Eucharist table that Jesus Christ is good news for the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and liberty for those who are oppressed. What does the good news look like? What does justice look like as Jesus teaches us? Look, these, this is material, this is some of the things I've been musing on for, for some time now, um, over the last couple years, last three years. Um, and obviously with these things, you can never really speak anything from here into a vacuum, right? Um, the context of the horrors and justice in Palestine and the um, obviously coming Transgender Awareness Week and many other justice issues are on our minds and pervade the forefront of our minds. So I know when I'm talking about justice and fairness, these things obviously lie at the foreground or and the background of what we, we're talking about today. And so the application, and in a sense, of Jesus' justice may look different in each of these spaces, and in some of these spaces can seem harder to see enacted in these. Um, yet I, I still really believe deeply at the same time that the good news of Jesus' reign of justice and love is universal and something worth us trying to continue to pursue, worth us continuing to pursue. And so I'm not going to talk, um, uh, I'm doing that as a premise because I know there's kind of a lot of linkage between these things, but I'm not going to make any specific claims about these things or how justice can be enacted in these spaces, although I'm always up for conversation with these things. And also because I think you need more nuance to talk about these things. But I encourage you to, you know, um, whatever I talk about here, um, that we kind of take it away, ask God, where can I see your justice in these spaces? Where can I see your justice being enacted in these spaces? Um, so the first of these parables I want to share on is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. This is one of my favorite parables. Um, it's in Matthew 16, I think. Matthew 20, sorry, rather. Um, Matthew 20. Uh, basically, uh, a landowner hires some laborers for his vineyard at various times throughout the day. Um, some he goes to the yard and he uh, invites them in early in the morning. They work the day. Um, some, are, some he goes back at noon and he goes, oh, there's still people around, I'll hire you too. Three o'clock, he goes there, some other people around, he hires them. And at five o'clock, he hires them and says, and he's like, what are you doing here? Why are you still here? They say, well, no one's hired us. And so he hires them and they work on the vineyard. And each of them end the day at, this, at the same time. So, so the ones early in the morning obviously work longer, and, but they all get paid the same wage, um, the one denarius. And then the laborers, laborers early in the morning, which I think understandably then complained to the landowner saying, well, that's a bit unfair. I worked nine hours, but the other guys have worked one hour, but you've paid us the same amount. 
Um, and then the landowner dismisses his grumbling, and then Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. That, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much the entirety of the parable, which is powerful, I think. Um, and so I think here Jesus tells us a story that, for, for me, myself, like, no matter how many times I read this, rubs up against my sense of fairness. Rubs up against my sense of fairness. I, I, you know, I think about um, you know, if I worked a full day at Frank's, um, the cafe I work at, um, and my colleague worked one hour, and we got paid the same, way, uh, same at the end of the day, I, I kind of, I, I'd question it. I think I would. Uh, I, I'd be, I think I'd go, is this fair? Is this really fair? And, and I don't think it's actually surprising. Like, no matter how much we want to, like, you know, believe that we have this kind of earnest belief in this kind of fairness thing, like, when we see this happen, it gives us discomfort. It is discomforting because it, it strikes against our deep ideas of what fairness looks like. But this is the precisely the story Jesus tells in Matthew 20 and says, this is the kingdom of God. Look, there, there are people who kind of allegorize this and read this as a parable um, talking about the end times or talking about how Jesus um, treats us in the coming of the kingdom of God. And I think that, you know, we can, we can read that. But I think if we read it just like that, we miss some of the ideas of fairness and justice and I think economic fairness and justice that this parable talks about. Because in this parable, each of the workers are paid one denarius. And... You know, the, the precise value of the denarius is not really clear in this day and age, but what we generally understand is that it's a modest wage for a day's work. So enough of a subsistence wage, enough of a living wage for each of this, the laborer and his family to be able to support them for a few days. And so what we have here is not a payment of an excessive amount, but just enough to live. And so if the landowner decides to pay, say, the first workers, which he agreed to pay the one denarius to, um, one denarius, they'd be able to survive. But if he had paid a proportion of that to the, to the last workers, they wouldn't have enough to survive. They'd have insufficient wage to support their families and what they need. And so that, in that doing that, the landowner would deprive the later workers of their basic needs. And so what I want to argue here is that the landowner is actually paying them on the basis of their needs rather than their productivity. That is, that an um, that economic imperative of fairness, what we understand, is not what I would argue this, this parable is telling us, is that we don't look at the productivity of each person, the fairness as a productivity, as the basis of worth, rather the intrinsic worth of each person. So what are the needs of this person before me, rather than what have they provided for me? That is, we are not our production, rather we are imago Dei, made in the image of God and valued as such. And so this is an economic idea, but I want to take us a little bit further and argue that, and I'm happy to chat more about economics and the Bible, by the way, that's a topic you can always set me up on. What I want to say is this parable is that fairness is not determined by what we do or don't do, rather it's based in the intrinsic worth of each person as imago Dei, as created by God in the image of God. And so this must be at the core of our basic understanding of what justice is, what Christ tells us justice is. One that places the intrinsic value of each human being, each person, no matter what they do or who, what they not, don't do, at the center of this. So my first point tonight is that justice through the parable of the workers is revaluing, is revaluing of each person as who they are and not what they do. Point one is this, justice through the parable of the workers is revaluing each person as who they are and not what they do. Um, the second parable I want to speak to today is the parable of the prodigal son 
or the parable of the two brothers, which I think is a nicer name, to be honest. Uh, uh, parable of two brothers. Um, it's a classic parable. I think most of you guys will know it and heard it a million times. And in the parable, it tells the story of two sons, right? The younger son who asked for the portion of his inheritance from his father, saying, you know, I want the inheritance ahead of time. And the father who grants him his request, the son then squanders his fortune, then becomes destitute, and he says, um, oh, well, the only thing I can do is go home. Even my father's servants get treated better than this. And so he, then he returns home empty-handed, and in his, he, he kind of says, I'd rather be a servant before you. And his father, instead of that, says, no, I'm welcoming you back as family. I'm welcoming you back with celebration and a welcoming party. And then the older brother, as all older brothers often are, um, is grumpy. I'm, I'm an older brother. I'm always grumpy. Uh, and, and, and he refuses to participate in the festivities. And he says, you know, I've been here all this time. Why, why does he get the, the, the fattened calf? Why does he get the celebrations that you've never thrown for me? And almost this, um, I think sometimes, you know, we've heard this story so many times. But I, I, so, so many times in my life, I empathize with the older brother. Right? And the same way I think about those guys, the... the, the the, um, the workers who work at the very start. Where's the fairness in this? Where's the justice in this? If I, um, I've been here this whole time and yet the younger brother is brought in and has this massive party which you've never thrown me. Um, Chris Marshall, um, I don't know if you guys have engaged with him, he's a professor at Vic Uni um, who writes about restorative justice. He runs the Center of Restorative Justice there. And also he writes a lot about theology. He's a theologian as well, which is quite interesting. And he writes about the, the um, theological impetus for restorative justice um, called compassionate justice. And if you guys are interested in reading this sometimes, I'm sure I can find you an extract. There's a book that's on my to-buy list. Um, he writes about the ideas of justice and mercy, um, which we often see as conventionally contrasting concepts. But what he says that, that somehow, you know, when we give mercy, we thwart this idea of justice because the person doesn't get what they deserve. And he says this is a thin conception of justice, so one that's really simplistic. But what he argues is that when we read the story of the two brothers, story of the prodigal son, we see a thicker conception of justice, one that's more nuanced, one that evaluates justice. And where justice and mercy, mercy is becomes an integral part of that justice response. That mercy is actually an integral part of justice. And we can see this in the parable of the two brothers, right? The prodigal son, the, father, the response of the father to the prodigal son is one that's actually really breathtaking. Because, you know, nowadays, inheritance, you know, some people are a bit more touchy about that, some people aren't. But in this context, in this cultural context of the prodigal son, basically what the son has said to the father is, I, I wish you were dead or I had wished that you were dead when he's asking for inheritance. There's a deeper cultural value to that that we, I think gets lost in our society because it just sounds like some wayward son. But actually what he's saying is he's effectively saying that he wishes his father was dead. That he wishes his father was dead. And so when we see that the, in this cultural setting, when we see the father's actions of forgiveness and mercy, to, not just forgiveness and mercy, but to elevate him back to a place of honor demonstrates an incredible, an incredible amount of restorative love and of mercy. You see, what we see in this parable is that the father is restoring his son through mercy, restoring his right place through mercy. The response of the father in the return of him, of the son, is not to place him in shame, but rather he orders the slaves to fetch the best robes, to put on the signet ring, to throw, to kill the flattered calf. He lifts the gravitas of his son, treating him like a guest of honor. You know, this is contrary to how we understand 
our current criminal justice system, one that seeks to exacerbate um, shame, um, the offender's sense of shame, to discourage them from repeating it. Rather, we see in the older, which is what the older brother kind of advocates was, like, why, why are you giving him these good things? He's done the bad thing. Um, that, that should be the bad consequence instead. But instead, the father chooses to restore the younger brother to honor. And what Marshall writes is that there's a profound recognition here is that both the um, offender and the victim, both the father and the son, are on parallel, parallel journeys dealing with shame. On one for doing the harm, the son is shameful for the harm he's done, and the other for being harmed. And in this case, it's the conferral of honor that changes it, that transforms it, that in doing so, right relationship and justice is restored by the act of mercy and the act of restoration rather than the act of um, shame. And so with this parable, we see this thick conception of justice, one that includes mercy, that one that includes restorative justice, with the primary goal is not to punish or get even, but to restore people to right relationship with God, with others, and themselves. That is the heart of justice, that we, I don't, the heart of justice, God's justice, is to not get punished or get even, but to restore a person to the right relationship with God, others, and ourselves. This is a hard idea to hold. This is a really hard idea to hold. It seems to fly in the face of what we think the wrongdoer deserves, right? But I want, it, rubs against what we, you know, it rubs against what we think of justice, the idea that balance has to be achieved. But going back to that first parallel, parable, if justice is one that looks at revaluing each person for who they are and not what they do, then what does it mean when we say we're looking at the restoration of people, restoration of people back to the imago day as the center of justice as opposed to to the, um, to holding them to what they do. This is not to deny the importance of accountability. Um, in my opinion, the need for accountability is key in the process of restoration. Yet it's a vision of justice that's intrinsic to who Jesus says he is, one that seeks to restore each person regardless of what they do. So my first point is this, justice through the parable of the workers is revaluing re each person as who they are and not what they do. And my second point is this, that justice through the parable of the two brothers is one that seeks to hold mercy and restoration as intrinsic to justice. Justice through the parable of the two brothers is one that seeks to hold mercy and restoration as intrinsic to justice. Third point. Um, lastly, um, I want to speak to the parable of the persistent widow. We find this in Luke 18, and I'll actually just read from it. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming here. And then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Look, my point of this parable is a little simpler than the first two. But also, I guess... Harder. <laughs> the widow in the story is a seeker of justice, and in this case for herself, she seeks justice for against her opponent. I don't think we ever told really what that is. She comes before the judge because the judge has the power to grant this judge uh, justice, and yet she's denied. 
Yet she even eventually she's so persistent that the judge grants her this justice. And Jesus tells us a parable, Luke tells us that Jesus tells us a parable to remind us about our need to pray always. And I think there's a very simple point here, a really simple point here, is what is our call to persistent prayer for justice? God is the one with the power to grant justice. And so our response must be this persistent, audacious prayer that intercedes for justice in this world. This is, must be alongside the actions that speak and move towards justice as well. I, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. But this can't be done without the prayer, the audacious, persistent prayer that sits alongside it. And this parable is also about hope, right? That how her, through her persistence, the widow does not relent because she believes that um, because she doesn't replant, because she believes that something can change, something will change if she's audacious and she's persistent, and that the judge will do something, despite the fact, what does he say? I have no fear for God no, or no respect for anyone. Despite that, she holds the hope that God's justice, that justice will be enacted. And in the same way, I believe that God's justice, we can hope, we have hope that God's justice is something that can be achieved as we pray with persistence and hope. Next year, um, probably at the start of the year, I'm keen to explore some theology as a series on theology and on the base and, and kind of basis for prayer, audacious intercessory prayer um, together here, um, and some theology to, to kind of give us um, some framing for that. But what, I, what can I, I can clearly say, even in this moment before we kind of do that whole journey, is that this persistent, audacious prayer alongside our actions is a key and vital response to injustice in the world. That persistent, audacious prayer is a key and vital response to injustice in the world. So point one is this. Justice through the parable of the workers is revaluing each person as who they are and not what they do. Point two is this. Justice through the parable of the two brothers is one that seeks to hold mercy and restoration as intrinsic to justice. And point three. Justice through the parable of the persistent widow is one that is grounded in persistent audacious prayer. And so in the theme of the persistent audacious prayer, I know there's a lot of different um, things on your heart that a lot of us hold in response to justice in, on this planet, in our land, in our friends, in our lives. And so as we don't have a worship team tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to play some music and we're going to just spend this time, I think, in the next you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, praying those audacious, persistent prayers to God, seeking justice in this world, whether that's you know, a worldwide scale or whether that's small in your day-to-day -day lives where you just need Jesus to bring his justice through, where you need to have um, maybe in those spaces where you're the one who needs to seek that mercy or forgiveness from another, or maybe it is where we need to um, seek that, or we need to offer that mercy and forgiveness for others to have justice in the world. You know, I, I, before we were doing the Passing the Peace, and as Charles was describing it, I realized that that's what justice looks like, is when we can sit together and get past the peace because God has restored us to right relationship with one another.